This is a Salt Hill Media Originals podcast. Hello, welcome to the Galway podcast. This is Fender Jackson. I'm very thrilled to have recorded this episode. I was in a conversation with a gentleman one time and he alerted me to Kevin Lynch and the work that he's been doing. So I tracked Kevin down and was delighted that he was willing to have a conversation with me. Usually before a podcast I have at least one conversation with somebody on a phone or in person. Uh, but that didn't happen this time, it was all via email, so what you hear is really Kevin and I unravelling what it is that Kevin does. Kevin will explain that nature does have a way of undermining humanity and humanity's ambitions to tame nature. And at times, obviously, the situation is bleak, but I'm delighted that Kevin is an optimist and there's plenty of optimism to be had in the current situation. Kevin does have three calls to action for us all. Uh, he mentions two in the podcast, but after the podcast, he went, oh, I should have mentioned that as well. So those three calls to action. Number one is stay off the sand dunes, particularly whenever the sand dunes are narrow, because, well, he'll explain why. I won't go into that detail. Number two is if you're concerned about flooding in your area, there's a link on the website uh, the, the Galway City Council website that you can go to and get involved there. I will include that link in the blurb, so just click that. And the third one was that if you are willing to volunteer for work, conservation work in the Galway area, again, I'll put the link in the blurb. Uh, there's a Facebook uh, volunteers page called Conservation Volunteers Galway. What seems to happen is that there's plenty of volunteers. For example, there's 2,000 followers. But whenever it comes to an actual volunteering event, uh, very few people turn up. So Kevin has asked that I include a link to this in the blurb also, which I have done. If you want to find out more, you can go to dunes.ie, which is Kevin's um, website, his blog. And he takes these scientific uh, concepts and presents them in a very digestible fashion. So I'm going to stop talking now. I'm thrilled to bring this forward. If Jim O'Higgins episode two was about the history of Galway, you can see this maybe is one direction for the future of Galway. I bring you Kevin Lynch. This is the Galway Podcast. Hello. Who are you? <laughs> And what do you do? I'm uh, Kevin Lynch, and I'm a, a coastal geomorphologist, which means I, I look at the shape of the landscape and how it changes over time and what causes it to change, and, and more recently, how humans are involved in, in that change, whereas in the past, people thought, oh, the natural system works on its own, and we don't have much impact, but it turns out we, we do have a lot of impact, and we change it ourselves. And what's your history? How did you get into this? I'm, uh, I suppose I, I worked for a long time um, in different jobs uh, for many years, canning beans and bachelors. I'd 
great job. Um, and at some point in, in my career, I sat down with my wife and we said, okay, what, what direction do I want to go? And I said, well, I'm interested in the environment and I'm interested in science. So, hey, why not do environmental science? So I went back and did a degree in environmental science up in Coleraine. And uh, the outcome of that was I, I enjoyed doing research. And I said, well, if I enjoy doing research and I enjoy being on the coast, maybe I'll do some coastal research. And in doing that, I got very interested in sand dunes and how sand dunes evolve over time and how they develop. And then in the last number of years, because of, of issues around climate change, I start looking more so at how climate, how sand dunes might help us in our battle against climate change. So that's kind of where I've come to, to this point. I'm working in the geography department in uh, the University of Galway. And my area in there is to look at coastal processes and how people interact with the coast and then how the coast can help us and what, what benefits we can get from sand dunes and other ecosystems on the coast. And what year did you do your degree in the University of Ulster? So I went back, I, we lived in, in uh, the US for a long time and we went back in 1999 and I did a, a four-year degree and then I taught for about a year and then after that I got a PhD and did that over three years. So I graduated in 2006 and I've been working in um, the geography department here since 2007. And what pulled you to Galway? Um, family, mostly family. So we grew up in Dublin in a housing estate in Dublin. And um, anytime the sun came out, we'd drop everything and all head down to Dollymount Beach. And mom was great at, at uh, you know, helping us enjoy the environment and getting us out into the, into the environment. And we spent all our summers down in Galway. So once um, a job came up here, uh, the, the family draw was really good and then also the, they were looking for a person that had some expertise in, in coastal processes and, and my area so the two things aligned. And what year was that that you came here did you say? That was 2007, 2007. so we've yeah. been here for 16 years now. Any regrets about moving here? Uh, none whatsoever. So what are the biggest challenges that you face? Um, in terms of my research and, and my work, um, I suppose it's trying to get people to be a bit more flexible in their views. So um, th that in the past, we, we might, as a society, as a, as a global society, not just in Ireland or in Galway, thought that the way in which we can live in this world was was to control nature and control the way in which we we live in it, control the sea, control the rivers, control the weather. I don't know if we ever got to that point, but th but definitely that we were the center of the universe and and we had control on everything. And I think um, you know throughout the the seventies and the eighties, especially with um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and, and absolutely key piece of, of writing back in the, the late 60s, the early 70s. Uh, Rachel said she woke up one morning and she couldn't hear the, the birds calling. And that kind of was one of the, the real kickstarters to the environmental movement. So um, from that point on, we, we begun to look at how we interact with nature, 
and how humans and, and nature interact over longer periods of time and our impact on nature and the way in which no matter what we try and do to control it, it finds a way to, to kind of undermine us. And so our biggest challenge right now is just trying to change that mindset. So I don't work on my own. I work with um, social scientists. I work with people that look at transformations of society. I work with um, other geomorphologists and, and people that have expertise in habitats. And we try and bring all these different types of disciplines together uh, to come up with solutions. And so I suppose the, the big challenge is getting people's mindset changed that, that we need all these different types of people to come together and to listen to people living in communities like Galway. Uh, I work up in Mayo a lot, communities in Mayo, and understand that, that they have really valuable information about the local environment, what has worked in the past, what hasn't. Um, just to give you an example of that, we, we were talking to a group in Iceland at one stage and they were they were talking about in Iceland and Greenland how they, they can be very disconnected communities. And at one point, uh, at some point in the past, the government came in and said, oh, we'll look after you and we'll take care of this and we'll take care of that. And they began to lose their traditional ways of, of dealing with storms, dealing with changing fishing patterns. And so they became less resilient. They became less able to look after themselves and to react to how the nature was changing, how the climate was changing things. And um, I think we're, at, we're asking people and we're, we're trying to get people to change back to that way that they can react better to changing climates, changing conditions in weather and patterns, uh, storms and things like that. So um, what, what we're really trying to do is bring a lot of people together at the table, take it out of the hands of, just the experts oh well we leave that to the experts they know how to build walls and do this that and the other um we've seen that doesn't work and so the challenge is to to try and get people around the table talking to each other and coming up with alternative solutions that we we maybe haven't tried in the last 20 or 30 years and so you mentioned there iceland and how um the modus operandi changed uh, because of government involvement the, Whenever I think of climate and and government and policies and politics and all the rest is the friction between short-term politics, political cycles, and the long-term of climate change goals. So um, was that uh, an influence? Was that a, a reason why Iceland became the way it became, that politicians were looking for the short-term hit of being becoming popular versus the long-term impacts of climate? In part. So I suppose one of the, the, the problems is not just... It's not about... I, I don't think it really is just about popularity. Um, it's more about the way we finance things. Uh, and that's across government. It's also across research. Um, you know, we're looking at climate change impacts and, and research is, is going into that. But they're always project-based and budget cycles are maybe yearly or, you know, longer term, they might be two or three years. And so it's very difficult to budget for a long term. Um, and so it's not, it's not just about, okay, we want to win popularity, so we'll, we'll spend our money in this area to get re-elected. That happens, 
without a doubt. Uh, but I, I think it's just more about, um, and even when I was talking about breaking those habits, it's those habits of how we we budget for thinking about the longer term, uh, how to ring fence money for solutions that are long term. And they're all oftentimes uh, things like maintenance costs, um, uh, money for soft solutions, money for ecosystems, where the, the short term thinking is, well, we want to stop, let's say, a storm right now. Uh, we know there might be a storm coming next winter. We need to stop that. But the thinking needs to maybe switch to the more long term. And this isn't just about the, the government. It's about communities. It's about people who are building at the moment houses for their future, for their kids' future, businesses in coastal zones, that they have to think about, well, where will the level of the sea be in 10 years' time, in 30 years' time? Um, that's not that long away. And so we have to factor these in. And so things like planning, so long-term strategic planning has to be a, a key factor. Sustainable planning. So what does that mean? It's a word bandied around a lot. What it really means is that if we think in the long term, we don't just think about the economic benefits or we don't just think about personal benefits, but we think about the economics, we think about the cultural aspect, the society, and we also think about the environment and how at a future point all of these can be working in harmony and we work towards that. So let's say there's a storm coming, somebody living in a house on the coast, we can't think short term and say, oh, can you please move your house back, you know, by a kilometre or two kilometres. But if you think future houses that are in that zone, let's not put them in harm's way now when we know in the future that sea level will be rising, storms might be more impactful, that the area will, that coastal zone will be changing. And look at that future and plan towards that. Now, that's that's where we need really strong leadership. We need strong political leadership, but also we need people to start thinking on a personal level about their futures and, and where, you know, is a, a good place to build and where is not a, a good place to build. So don't just rely on the experts. Take a bit of responsibility yourself on where you would like to live. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example. I know a lot of people live on, co on the coast, where they might be given a piece of land by parents, by somebody, or they might have uh, the opportunity to buy a piece of land on the coast. Uh, you have to think about yourself. Um, is that piece of land a good place? Okay, it might be the only piece you get, but if you're going to invest, how much do you invest for building a house? Hundreds of thousands, half a million, a million. You're investing that money. You are investing that money. Okay, the banks will give it to you. The banks haven't got your best interests at, at heart. Um, the government may give you planning permission for a certain area because they've done some studies and say, oh, that, that should be safe, and, and we've run some models. Um, it should be safe. Bring it on yourself. And so it's not just the, the top end where the government and the, the experts are, are thinking about it, but it's also the personal level and the community level. And if we can all work together and look at, okay, where are areas we should be building in? And it's not just on the coast. You know, in, in the past, we've built in river basins, on floodplains. We can, should learn the lessons from those that um, 
maybe planning that wasn't uh, as good as it should have been, assessments that weren't as good as they should have been. Um, listen to the locals. Oh, uh, that area has always flooded in the past. Why are they building there? Um, you know, that, that, that type of information can be very useful. And so it's a combination of personal, community, long-term, uh, top-down top approaches and bottom-up approaches. Um, but the real key thing is, is to think about a, a future point. Where do I want to be in 20 years, 30 years' time? The money that I'm going to invest, how is that going to look in 20 or 30 years' time? Um, what's the solution to that? I mean, I, personally, whenever I move to a place, I do think about these. There's a, there's a flood map.net, is that what it's called? Yeah. We can it. actually adjust the, the height of the tide, and I generally go for about five meters or so. Yeah. And, yeah. and if it's not there, then I think, okay, I'm safe here. My mother thought I was nuts whenever I started doing this here about 20 years ago, but she quickly found out, oh, that's good thinking. Mm. So how? what's your advice to anybody who's thinking about um, somewhere to buy or somewhere to move? The, the two main things on the coast would be the flooding and erosion. So for flooding... The higher you are above sea level, it's that simple. So looking at that map is is good um, and getting an idea of where the water level might be at that future point in time. Now, uh, these the flood maps and any of those uh, maps that you would see of the future, they're modelled maps. They're not always entirely accurate. So that's a good starting point, definitely. Uh, the second one is erosion. If you are on an area where the, 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 the ground is made up of, of unconsolidated sediments. Um, so probably the more <laughs> academic way of saying it. Um, the, the erosion rates there can be quite, quite, quite high. So in areas along the west coast where we have old glacial deposits, um, they could erode back very rapidly with a series of storms over a short period of time, over a year or two years. And what distance are you talking about? So that could be tens of metres. In a year? Yeah. And the the reason for that is, is the first storm uh, takes away whatever maybe protective beach or, or protective um, um, deposits that you've had on the coast, take that away, and then storms can get in further on the second one and it begin eroding the land. And then if you have a third or a fourth storm, then that storm clustering can cause really rapid roads very quickly um, in a certain area. Whereas if you're on something like hard rock, the erosion rates are going to be a lot slower. Um, and if you have something in front of you, uh, like a beach or a dune system that, that's mo more mobile, they can change very rapidly, very quickly as, uh, very quickly as well. So the underlying... Both for the positive and for the negative, I uh, assume. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, that, so that's one, one thing. And then for erosion rates, also the, the, and flooding, the, the actual level of, of the land. So where some people may think, oh, well, I'm a kilometre back from the coast. If it's really low-lying land in front of you, uh, then with sea level rise in 20 years, that, that could become a real hazard very quickly. So those, those are the two main things, erosion and, and flooding for the coast. And thinking about those and talking to 
to the planners about these things um, before you build. Uh, so you mentioned there about us all working together. Mm. Can you uh, give me um, a beautiful pictures to what that looks like? Okay, uh, on the coast, uh, not 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 too many uh, good examples there, um, but in on the peatland side. So you know we've heard a lot about bogs and turf cutting over the years and the the, the conflict over it. And um, one of the reasons so, that... Sorry, enlighten me about that, because I've never heard this conversation. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. So traditionally in, in Ireland, one of our sources of fuel has been turf from the bogs. And we've used the these areas that were wetlands and considered in the past, in, the, in this past where we thought that everything was there for our consumption and, and human consumption and for the betterment of man. Uh, we saw these as kind of wastelands and... and simply there to be used and so one of the uses that we've made of these bogs is to cut turf dry it out and use it as fuel in our fires and so that's been a, a tradition for hundreds of years in, in Ireland. So more recently the the impact that this has had for, on two areas one is is the habitat so there, there is a, actually a, a peatland a, a wetland habitat there that's that's very important and secondly the amount of carbon that's stored in in these um peats is very important so so by digging up the turf you're releasing carbon which is the damaging to the environment exactly so on the one hand you're releasing carbon you're releasing um you have emissions and greenhouse gas has gone into the environment so that's making things worse and on the other hand uh because the bog isn't building up you're not uh locking in carbon so carbon sequestration is a really good service that we get from healthy um peat peatlands and bogs so at some point in in the last number of years um the science behind it that we should be locking up the carbon rather than releasing it the decision was made to stop turf cutting and so we stopped stopped the turf cutting and we we made laws about it and policies about it uh, but there seemed to have maybe been a lack of um uh, discussions with the people that were actually using the bogs and so that was the landowners that was people that had rights to cut the the bogs for for fuel and there was serious conflict for uh, a number of years over this and so one way in which to avoid this conflict and bring people together is to actually have some type of forum where you can talk about the issues and then before they become up and become conflict you can maybe come up with solutions and oftentimes people think well you're not going to get these two groups to come together and come up with a solution but you don't know until you have them around the table and once you have people around the table it's like that old saying about a problem shared is a problem solved you do actually come up with, with many, many solutions. And you might come up with areas where, okay, you can't find common ground on that. And there might be winners and losers in that sense. And you have to be open about that. But there are areas then where you can work together and maybe phase things out. Um, and so 
the example that I'm coming back to uh, is the peatland forum. So we have a peatland forum where people that are interested in, in the habitats and interested in the this, this species, the flora and fauna of the bogs, come together with landowners, with people that own the land, and they've come up with a conversation, a way in which to talk about these issues. And through that, they've come up with many different solutions, some of them being uh, tourism, and bringing visitors to certain areas, others being uh, ways in which that we, we can rehabilitate the bogs so that they do lock up that carbon. And so you're getting, you're beginning to get these services back again. And that Peatlands Forum is um, online and you can go on there and you can see that there's well, a wealth of information. They meet very regularly. Um, and then that forum has a direct link to the policymakers. It has a direct link to government. And so you go from uh, a, a, an area where there's conflict to an area where you have people talking from right down at the individual landowner, the, the, the person in a community, all the way up to government. They might end up sitting around the table talking about these issues. Whereas in the past, it was more about, oh, well, those guys up in Dublin. <laughs> a lot of them were in Dublin. Those guys in the county council, those guys here. And then from within the councils, within government, they, oh, those communities, they, they want this and they want that. I don't know what they want. They don't know what to do. They're, they're always giving out about things. And you go from that scenario to them sitting around nodding. Mm. And that's the one thing I often find when you're in a room with, with people that have shared uh, love of something and so they all have shared love of these bogs we all have shared loves of beaches and dunes when we come together in a room no matter what background we're from we can find things to to have a chat about and people begin nodding and once you see other people nodding you go oh actually those guys couldn't be too bad and you have a cup of tea with them and a couple of bickies and mm. the next thing you're starting to come up with well okay, that mightn't work, but this might work. I know a guy or I know this one does this thing and they do that thing. And you begin to find solutions. Um, and so that's, I think that's really uh, our challenge is, is to come up with uh, for a forum on the coast that we can bring people together. And there's lots of initiatives now that we're, we're working on myself and Eugene Farrell in the department. He's a, another coastal geomorphologist and, uh, you know, we, we came to the realisation very quickly that the, the science behind beaches and dunes, the science behind how the sand graves move, sand grains move on the beach, isn't as important as understanding all the factors of how we use the, the beaches, how the communities view them, how the farmers use them, how the, the landowners and, and um, government, how everybody views these things um, and bring them together and, and see the human side of it. So that's kind of our challenge at the moment is, is to facilitate this coming together of, of the science, the social science, the communities and, and the, the managers and the, the planners. I think whenever you're talking there about uh, people nodding and all the rest, it, it made me think of uh, a saying I came across recently, which was secrecy fuels conspiracy. So um, if if you're in a, dealing with a situation and there's some people making decisions that have an impact on your life, 
then you think their motives are the worst. So mm-hmm. um, it's very important to bring people to um, have a conversation. To and you can't do that in a Zoom call. You know, it's yeah. a very different yeah. experience. Um, I'm I'm dreading to ask this question, but I I, I feel duty bound. How much danger is Galway in? <laughs> yes, uh, Galway and Galway, and, and more importantly, what can we do about it? Galway City, in particular. Um, so I suppose as a, as a, a coastal geomorphologist um, and globally, the way in which we think is is about space. One of the things we think about is space. Um, and the reason that we think about space is because we need space for natural processes to occur. So in uh, many areas we have beaches and in Galway we have many beaches and we have sand dunes and these create a buffer between us and the sea. Uh, in other areas, we might have extensive wetlands. Uh, if you go up to Donegal, they have extensive dune systems up there. Uh, they're, they're like high-rises, they're so big. And they, they create these great barriers. Um, but in order for them to function properly, and the same with the, the, the peatlands and the bogs, for them to function properly, they need space. And so in places like Galway, where in the past we've used that mentality of, okay, we need to control the environment, control the sea and what the sea does, stop the sea, resist the sea. We've made that decision already. And we need, it's not that we need to, but but we're really constrained with, with our options once we make that decision. And so protection in terms of hard rock and engineering are something that we've gone down that line for Galway and we will probably have to continue on that line. So uh, some of the areas are, are reclaimed, so all along Sea Point, that's reclaimed land, and maybe there's not there's no chance to, to go back to having that natural buffer there. So for Galway, it's, it's probably going to be quite an engineering uh, solution for the future. But we do have opportunities to... Um, look at some of the other um, nature-based solutions. So encouraging seagrass growth, which we have in Galway Bay, kelp, and both of these um, plants that live in the sea, they can give us some type of buffer against storms, maybe not as much as we need. So we'll need a hybrid approach. We have beaches. When the beaches build up during the summer, when the winter storms occur, they take the brunt of it and they erode so, so there's a waxing and a waning of a beach in, throughout the year. I didn't know that. Exactly, yeah. And so very quickly the beaches can erode during a storm in Salt Hill. Um, and we have other beaches in Grattan and Ballylochan and Silver Strand. And they take the brunt of it. The sand is brought out to the sea. And during the summer then that sand comes back and it, it builds up again. But we it's, it's building up against the promenade, building up against hard rock structures, except for Grattan is one of the only ones we actually have a, a sand dune at. And so uh, that, that is a, a part of a buffer, but it's not a, it, we can't do full nature-based solutions for Galway. So it will be a hybrid approach between the hard engineering and looking after what we ecosystems we have there at the moment. And are you saying there that the, the road there, the promenade is actually counterproductive in a way? 
It is, yeah, certainly. Any anything that's that's um, trying to control the sea in a high energy environment. So we get we get um, even though it's not as high energy maybe as the the west side of the Aran Islands or the the coast of Clare or Mayo, uh, we are somewhat protected by the Aran Islands in here. We still do get a lot of uh, big storms and energy rolling in through Galway Bay, and. <clears throat> they essentially they bounce off that that rock armor and then take the sand away faster than it would if it was a natural system um and so it it's not too bad in Galway but in in other areas where they try and build these sea walls to stop the sea they're very detrimental so any talks of of building these hard structures on sand dunes say on the Clare coast or the exposed Mayo or Donegal coast would be very counterproductive because you're you're literally building on top of what what we value which are the sand dunes and then as the storms roll in they take away the sand at the base of those seawalls and you're left at high tide with no beach whatsoever so you're you're kind of destroying what you value and so it, it's not the solution and, and for those areas that are in more exposed on on um, exposed coasts on the west western side of Ireland, you want to think definitely about nature-based solutions, looking after the ecosystems we have. And then just to come back to Galway, you know, one of the the main areas of Galway that that floods is around Spanish Arch, um, over towards the Clada, and we have no ecosystems right at that place, that space that that will help us. And so we need engineering and alternative ways of, of looking at that, adapting to... Is, is that happening? It is It is happening and there is a plan at the moment and it's the it's it's ongoing and people should get involved in that if they're interested. How, how can they? Um, so it, if you go into the, the Galway City um, website, there's a link through that to the, the flood plan and that, that's ongoing. The next round of that is due to to open to public consultation in June of this year. And so, you know, people that are interested should definitely get involved in that. And sorry, I interrupted you. Mm. How, how yeah, is so it going to be? One, one of the, the options for that, if if we go back to the nature-based solutions, is to think about, well, where does where is the water coming from? And most of that water, so it's coming from both sides. One is from the sea, and it's high tides and, and spring tides and storm surges. And the other is from the catchment, from the entire catchment for the Corrib. And what we could look at, and it has worked very effectively in Donegal, in the Inishon Peninsula, is to slow the flow, is what we call it. And so trying to find ways in which we keep the water in the catchment and stop it coming down to the river rapidly after a storm. And so wetlands, um, peatlands, direct flows into those areas and try and trap the water there. And the, the service that that gives us, uh, the ecosystem service that gives us, is it absorbs the water and then it releases it more slowly. So again, in the past our thinking was um, farmland. We want to improve farmland. We want greater production. We want to improve farmland. So let's drain drain the land. Let's get the water off the land as quickly as we can into the channel. The problem with that is, okay, it's in the channel now. It has to go somewhere. It arrives rapidly down at the, the end of that river system. For Galway, 
that's the Corrib system feeds into Galway. For the Shannon, you always hear about the, the lower uh, reaches of the Shannon flooding because we're trying to move water as quickly as we can off the land into the channel system and away, but it goes somewhere. So now what we can do is we can go back and say, okay, maybe that wasn't the best idea. Are there areas that we could let the water move to and not go into the channel? So wetlands, um, in some areas, they're redirecting it into, into forests. So it's just the high flows. So on small little channels and streams and tributaries, uh, they put a barrier across above that, the, the actual stream. And so for the higher flows, it hits the barrier and is redirected into an area where we can accept flooding for, you know, a few days or, or a few weeks. So forests, wetlands, peatlands. And we redirect the flows in there. It doesn't arrive down to the towns and the villages as quickly. And we're able to, to manage that. And so the flood, the, the height of the water coming into those isn't as high. And so that by, by doing that, we're lowering the, the level of the river. And so that's something that we could look at in catchments like the Corrib. I never even thought that the, the Corrib could be responsible for the flooding of the Tlada. Yeah, and, and one, uh, the, again, uh, the, the idea of dams um, and regulating water flow has, has been, uh, uh, the mindset has been that we can hold it in a certain area and release it when we want. And in the past, because... Uh, sometimes the, the the management of that isn't always optimal. You, you'll notice my language is is trying to be positive. Uh, the the management of that hasn't always been optimal. So sometimes the the dams and the reservoirs, the the water is at capacity, and it has to be released. And that just coincides, happens to coincide with a storm and a storm surge. And so you, you end up with water at the coast. And so it's not always, it's always possible to manage the environment the way in which we want. And nature finds a way to, to undermine us. So, um, you know, and in, in a lot of catchments, we don't have that opportunity to regulate the flow like we do in, in Galway. Um, and so thinking about these, these ideas of just slowing the flow, um, redirecting it into areas that, that we can allow to flood for, you know, a few days, a few hours, anything just to, to stop that arrival of all that water down at a, a town or a village at the same time as a high tide is occurring. That, that can really make the difference. I, I'll go back to that example up in the Inishon Peninsula. One of the, the, the problems with this is that you need landowners to... Um, come on board and see the value of this and oftentimes uh, it may be that there's they don't see the value because their land has been flooded how could that okay could you give us some compensation for it and the mechanisms and this is where we get back to what I was talking about earlier that the economics the way in which we budget aren't there and one of the things that we don't pay for at the moment so we pay for production we pay for more production out of our farmland out of our, our land what we don't pay for is things like well can I pay you to let your land flood so the really high value not to say that our land isn't valuable. The farmer, we, we all love, we love the land and it's very valuable. But in terms of purely monetary terms, the, the towns and villages, um, the, the 
amount of damage could be reduced if we redirected these flows. So could we not pay some people that own the land for that inconvenience? So that's paying for ecosystem services. And that's a real hole in the whole setup of, of how we operate right now. Um, and so just back to the example on the Inishon Peninsula, uh, that's not in place. But the when they got everybody around the table, the landowners were able to say, well, actually, we know, you know, it's a small enough area. We we have houses. We have people that we know in this community. We don't want it to be flooded. Uh, yeah, we can come up with areas that we could redirect the flows. And so it was done simply on a community basis with no payments, no benefits other than the, the benefit of not having the town and the, the um, village flooded. And so, you know, if if you can get people talking then you can come up with solutions. And hopefully um, in the future we have, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the ACRES programme. It's the latest uh, agri-environmental scheme uh, to pay farmers to uh, manage their, or to farm their land in a way that's a bit more uh, friendly to the environment, to the biodiversity, to the habitats that may be on their lands. And we are... we're looking at ways to, to make this work uh, in terms of these ecosystem services. And so if we could redirect some payments specifically for, for those tasks, so where people own land that are sand dunes, that are, are beaches, that are wetlands, that that could specifically be part of, of a program because of the, the service that it gives to reduce flooding. You know, that would be a really great way to go instead of it just being about production. It's about, okay, look after the habitats and, and they look after us. So one of the, the we had a, a sand dune campaign last year with the um, the CARO, the, the Climate Action Regional Office in the Northwest. And we came up with a slogan, sand dunes protect us, let's protect them. And it's the same for any of our ecosystems. We get a lot from the environment so maybe we should try and, and look after them in a, in a better way. how do we do that? How do we protect them? So uh, I, I suppose, again, it, it's back to looking at how a, a system operates and being aware of what it needs. And then if we can factor that into the way in which we, we use the, the area. So in terms of farming, again, back to the farming, we could say if we understand how this sand sand dune system worked how people use it how the farmer wants to use it and then um, come up with solutions that allows for them to use it in a productive way but then also look after the the um, flora and fauna so one example would be um, the the bumblebee project that's going on up in Belmullet at the moment and so the ecologists and the, the the landowners have come together and they've identified areas that these bumblebees may be able to to um, access and to use and they've asked the farmers you know how do you use this piece of land and they've come up with solutions so it might be reducing the the stocking numbers on that particular piece of land or it might be not using it for a certain time of the year Um, it might be that they they actually get some benefit from the, having more pollinators in the area. 
So we need pollinators for a, a lot of our, our crops. So th- we have those benefits as well. And so the Bumblebee project, there's the Corn C- Creek project, where again, they work with farmers and the landowners. Uh, the life on mac hair. Mac hair is a type of, of sand dune as well. And there's lots of these projects where we have all of these people working together to come up with, with solutions. And oftentimes, it's, it's not things that are too far out of the way. So in one area, uh, we said, well, you know what would be really good if rather than having sheep on the land, we have cattle on the land. And from the outside, not being a farmer, we think, oh, well, that, that might really annoy them because there's always sheep there. But then you go talk to the farmer. Well, what's the advantage of having cattle there? So cattle and, and sheep and horses and all these things that graze and, and eat grasses, they all do it in a different way. So some of them munch down right to the, the very soil. Others pick up the grass and, and pull it out by its roots and disturb it. And um, others then, they don't really care. They just eat everything. Uh, so if you have a, a, a certain number of cattle, uh, they disturb the, the soil just enough. And so in that disturbance... By, by, by eating down to the root? No, so they, they just by walking around, oh, you know, okay. they, they might um, break up the, the surface of, of the soil where there might be vegetation. And what about the argument then, that the methane that they release, how does that balance? That's, uh, that's a tough question for me because uh, I, I'm not really uh, an expert on emissions and that side of things, and I'd, I'd be uh, a bit uncomfortable. What we would be thinking for sand dune systems is reducing stocking rates. So there are certain cattle that are better. They're, they're kind of lighter cattle and they're better at disturbing just enough. Mm-hmm. They're, they're better at eating just the right plants. Mm-hmm. And so when, when they uh, are in a certain area, biodiversity increases. If there's too much, it reduces. Um, the the burden is a really good example. You need farming in the burden for it to um, have increased biodiversity. If you had no farming whatsoever, it, you would lose the habitat that's there now, that unique habitat, that those unique plants and, and animals that are there. So you need a certain level uh, of disturbance. And so in, just in terms of the methane side of it, um, if you have a healthy habitat, you're also um, you're also sequestering carbon as well, and so there, there's that balance and and working out exactly uh, the, the on on a scale which end you're tipping towards. That's another thing that we're not very good at. So we can we can quantify the amount of gas. But it's more difficult to quantify that in terms of, okay, how does that balance against biodiversity? Because gas is one, you know, the units of measurements for gas is different to the units of measurement for biodiversity, which is different to units of measurement for somebody farming the land. And so all of these things don't quite equate and we're really bad at valuing ecosystem services, valuing all of these things that we get from the environment. So... It's, it's not an easy thing to answer, and I'm not really the man to answer it, but I'm trying to work with and develop uh, ways in which that we can do that and talk to the right people, the economists, mm. the, the people that uh, measure value, like landscape, the value of the landscape. We had a project, we have an ongoing project in um, Bertra, on Bertra Strand in, in just outside of Westport, 
And as part of that, we sat down a lot of people around the table. And funnily enough, one of the absolute key values that came up from the local community wasn't monetary. It wasn't about the economics. It wasn't about jobs. All of these things came up in the conversation. But the one thing that seemed to resonate was that when they opened their front door in the morning, just the, the feeling of looking out on the landscape, breathing in the fresh air, smelling the, I don't know, what's some roses? <laughs> Maybe they had roses in their garden. But just that feel and, and those types of things are very hard to, to, to value. And put into this equation that you're talking about, how do we balance the, the gas emissions with the, the biodiversity? How do we balance that with, you know, the, the economics of farming and owning land and having businesses on, on the coast? Uh, it's difficult and I can't do it right now and I don't think we as a society can do it right now. I think I think it's... There's only so much you can do, as you as you admit, and um, it'd be unfair to expect you to be an expert in all fields. So, yeah, um, yeah. but it's good that these conversations are taking place. Surely, yeah, yeah. Mm. I do, I, and I think um, it's it's good to uh, listen to the conversations and and have opinions on them. So while I might be, not be an expert on it, I know when people are talking about these areas of maybe what's missing or or what's been left out of the conversation, and oftentimes that's the hard to measure things so when people are in a room and and they come up with okay we figured this out and we valued this and uh, we've looked at the risk and we've done this that and the other I'm normally the one in the room going ah, but you forgot this and you forgot that and the answer will be oh, well we can't measure that that's too hard to measure it's like well that's not a that's not an answer we we still have to factor it in even if it's hard to measure so, and that's one of the real difficulties with sand dunes and beaches and dunes and nature-based solutions is it's oftentimes very hard to um, quantify the, the benefits that we get from them. Do you miss a loved one that's passed on? Perhaps you miss their voice or their mannerisms. Perhaps you have questions that remain unanswered. Don't let that happen to your children or grandchildren. At Salt Hill Media, we can record your life story or that of a loved one for future generations. So when someone asks, hey, what was granny like? Or what was granddad like? You can point them to an interview and say, you tell me. We can tailor an interview to be as long or as short as you want it to be. All with professional recording equipment and post-production. You may think that your life is not worth documenting. Well, not according to your children or grandchildren. Record that life story before it's too late. Email salthillmedia at gmail.com or go to salthillmedia.com for more information. This is the Galway Podcast. I'm having visions of harvesting sand. Does that work? So, you know, people are dumping sand whenever we need it in the dunes. Is that, is that, what's the problems with that? Um, yeah. Harvesting sand. So in, in the past, we, we used to harvest the sand directly from the beaches and the dunes. And we, we got to the point where it was quite clear that, that these beaches and sand dunes are, are a buffer for storms and, 
and we shouldn't be taking the sand away. And one of the reasons for this is that it's, it's not a renewable resource. So there's a, I suppose there's a misconception that sand is continually being made. You know, you, people do their intercert geography and, and it's about, oh, well, the rocks break down on the cliffs and then it, the waves and the currents, they, they bash the rocks together and that makes sand and then that washes up on our beach. So we always have a supply of sand. But really, that's not where we get our sand. <laughs> We, get, we, we have gotten our sand from the last glacial period. And that was, you know, th that ended 10,000 years ago. So it's a finite resource? It's a finite resource. And in some areas, it's, it's very finite in terms of um, within a bay. It's literally whatever's in the bay is the sand we have. Now, that's, that sand is, is held in what we call stores. In geomorphology, we, you know, we call them stores. And... Uh, one of the stores is the seabed and that sand moves from the seabed onto the beach and into the sand dunes. And so the, it moves back and forth throughout the year, but it also moves along the shore and we have to be careful that, you know, we're aware of that. But one of the other places that it's locked up is in these glacial deposits I meant er mentioned earlier on. Um, and erosion of those cliffs does give, release that sand again and give it to us. And so in, in some areas that we work up, again, up around, say, um, Clue Bay and Mayo, the, these glacial cliffs, when they're eroded, the sand the, the, is released. Cobbles are released and rocks and boulders. And the sea, it, it's a great thing. It, it organizes, self-organization, we call it. It organizes this material that's eroded from the cliff into things we call beaches. So it moves all the sand over and it all accumulates on what we call a beach and then that blows up into the dunes. In other areas, all the big boulders gather together and and maybe make a, a, a boulder field. And in other areas, cobbles all come together. So those ones that are kind of similar in size. So if you go down to the prom one of these days and you're walking along and you see a sandy beach called Crab Pool Beach or Ladies Beach, and then you walk a bit further and you find a cobble beach. That's quite natural. That's the way, the, the way in which the uh, waves and the coast and the coastal processes organize things. Um, and so within any particular bay or within any particular system, we have a finite resource. And so we don't want to be using that sand and taking it away and using it for other things. So... Once we, we kind of got that idea that we shouldn't be using it, and right across the world, um, the, the policy is not to use this sand for, for other purposes. So then the, the idea was, okay, we won't use that. We'll use the stuff that's offshore, that's beyond the, the reach of the waves, beyond um, you know stuff that might wash up on a beach. And sure, that'll be fine. And the term for that that's used is borrow areas. So they borrow it. I, I've never seen any return. They wouldn't be good at, at borrowing out of the library. You know, you're supposed to return it. So they borrow it from this area and then bring it to where they need it. So um, sand nourishment and nourishment of beaches, they might take it from there. Aggregates for the building industry, uh, they might take it, again, from offshore. But oftentimes, these areas offshore, these are habitats as well that we get benefits from. 
um, one particular one. I know this is this is uh, not on, on screen, so we can't see it. But one slide that I, I, I use is one of these offshore areas um, just off the, the north coast of Ireland. They, they mapped out the different habitats. And one of the habitats um, offshore was um, an, a, a bank where cod um, um, rejuvenate. So you have the, the young cod in this area for a certain time of the year and this is where the, the cod has time to grow up into the juvenile size, into the size that they can go out into the open ocean. Um, and so if you're going in there and, and digging out the area that they're using uh, as juveniles, you're completely disturbing that site. And that's only just one species. And I I say cod because there's a serious problem of overfishing. Why are our cod stocks not where they were back in the 50s and the 40s because of overfishing? Well, maybe it's not just because of overfishing. Maybe it's also because of the way in which we use other parts of their habitat. It's not all just one habitat. And so all these things are interlinked. And, and the one thing that, as an environmental scientist, that we're always thinking about is the the interlinkedness of things, how things are interrelated that maybe you haven't thought about before. So we're talking about sand and now we're talking about cod mm. and then we could talk about climate change, how that affects those as well. Um, and so we, we have to be cognizant of that. So the sand that we have in any particular bay or any particular beach is quite finite and we, we really have to, to look after it. Mm. That's fascinating. So... Mm. It's kind of scary a bit, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So how hopeful are you about the future of Galway, for example? Um, for Galway, for Ireland and the West Coast, because I, I work I, more so in the, in the northwest coast from Galway all the way up to Donegal, um, in terms of, of habitats and, and how we can use these as a, a solution, I'd be very hopeful. So the government um, and and the way in which we, we look at these issues has gone from that engineering approach and purely engineering to looking at things like slow to flow, to looking at beaches and dunes as a nature-based solution. And in order to facilitate that, they've created this thing called the, the Climate Action Regional Office. And that office is um, tasked with helping our local authorities implement these things like uh, climate adaptation, climate mitigation, so that we tackle climate change with that long-term view. Within each of the councils, we have climate action officers. And we had, in certain councils, we've had them for a few years. Every council now is going to have a climate action officer. An officer is... Uh, at the lower levels of, of the chain of command, let's say, in, in a particular county council or city council. We are now employing people at the top end, at the chief, chief executive end, the, the, the um, decision-making end, again, for climate, for how we will implement these adaptation and, and mitigation. So within each of the local authorities, within regional government, in central government, we have people that are now better trained on how to look long-term 
and to look at mitigation and adaptation. So I'd be very hopeful that their impact on the ground is going to be really seen in the next number of years. And so if you go back to Galway and looking at how can we deal with flooding and erosion um, and look at that consultation that, that will... Uh, it's uh, maybe a, a second or a third round of it, so it's not just a once-off thing, it's a process, that um, people will get involved in that. And so the, the opportunities for not just local government to do things better, but for people to get involved in that are definitely open. Um, it won't be plain sailing, because we still have that mindset issue of, oh, well, we'd still like to build something and just, you know, a nice simple solution. But, you know, climate change and, and the impacts has been described as a wicked problem, a really complex problem. So we can't have simple solutions to complex problems. We have to put the work in and long term, it will actually be um, cheaper to, to look at all these alternative solutions. Because there's no way we can build a wall the whole way around mm -hmm. Ireland and, you know, hide behind the wall. Uh, at some point, the the, the sea is gonna go, gonna come in. So the economics of it just isn't there for that. So we we have to begin to adapt, but we won't adapt overnight. It'll be a long term. We're, we're deep in this conversation. We haven't even discussed climate denialism. So mm -hmm. do you want to just talk a little bit about that, the challenges you face, and how you counter those arguments? Um, the simple answer, <laughs> I just said there's no simple answers. The, yeah. the, the simple answer from, from my point of view is I just ignore that. So you, that'll surprise people. I know that surprises people. So climate deniers, the, talk to anybody in, in Galway that has lived in Galway. Talk to, to anybody that lives on the coast uh, about the impact of storms. In 2013-14, we had a whole series of, of storms. In 2015 and 16, along the north coast, and some impact here. In 2017, we had um, Storm Irene, was it? Storm. So what you're saying here is they're more, becoming more prevalent and uh, more severe, is that correct? No, what I'm saying is we have storms. So before, so, the, before these years, was there storms and were they as big and as frequent? We, before that, we had storms. And if you talk to people about the night of the big wind back in 1858, sorry, uh, I don't know the exact year, mm. in the 1800s, the night of the big wind, um, uh, Hurricane Charlie, we've always had storms. We've always had impacts. We have not learned how to deal with those storms and deal with those impacts. So what we need to do is be able to deal with storms, able to deal with impacts, able to deal with them in the long term. Because we've seen that short-term solutions don't work, so we have to think long-term. So we don't, ha we don't even have to talk about climate change. We have to talk about how can we adapt to what's happening now. And in that way, then, we don't have to have that debate that, that uh, you know, is it happening? Is it not happening? If you're living on the coast, it's happening. <laughs> there are storms. There are impacts. Mm. Let's figure out ways in which to deal with those. And then you use up your energy figuring out, figuring out solutions, not having an argument. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, you know, and people then can get behind, oh, yeah, okay, maybe this is a solution, maybe that's a solution. 
um, instead of, you know, s- smoke and mirrors, maybe sometimes people throw these up to, you know, at the end of the football match. It's not about the the, the team and you hear, often hear the manager going on about the referee. And maybe it is about the team. Mm. <laughs> so rather than changing the conversation, we just talk about what the problem is. And the problem is that we're getting impacted by storms and we're getting impacted by flooding and erosion. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were really thinking about the future and you were really... Uh, started looking at these things, um, I don't think there's any way in which you could say that sea level isn't rising. Um, whether we're causing it or not, again, that that's, that's a debate that we don't have to have. Sea level is rising. If you're investing a lot of money in a house on the coast or a business, uh, do you want to have that argument or do you want to figure out how to do it in a safer way, in a, in a way in which that business or house will be there for the long term. You will look at what the, the level of the sea is doing in the long term. So thinking about impacts and thinking long term, they're, they're the two ways in which we can have a conversation. I'm aware of the time. We have probably about five minutes left, so I'm going to maybe just hit you with some of the quick fire questions. Why is the carb so fast? The carob, the it, flow on the carob. No, I, no. Judging from this conversation, there's a question I wrote before you said something earlier, and it's, it's to do with the drainage that the, they thought will drain the, the land quicker. So that's resulted in the carb being unusually fast. Is the carb unusually fast? That's that's the first question. Uh, no, the, the the carob, the flow on the carob is is completely regulated. So uh, if you speak to any of the rowers, any of the swimmers uh, that use the carob, they can tell you on any given day how many gates are open. So I can't remember the total number, but it's somewhere around eight or ten. And if there's eight gates open, you know it's going to be fast and uh, be careful. Um, and if it's down to two, then you're fine. You can maybe swim against the, the current at two, but once it gets up to four or five, it's going to be very difficult to swim I didn't even know that. about these gates yeah. being in existence. So what you're mm-hmm. saying is there's there's just a staggered amount of gates all the way up the, the river which uh, stems the flow. So just there at the, the cathedral, the, the there's the salmon weir and those gates, they, they're spread right across. So it's a when they're all closed, it's essentially a dam. Mm. And then as you open each gate and each gate, I've never been close to one, so I'm not exactly sure how wide they are, but they, they look like they're two or three meters in width. And once you open a gate, it increases the flow. So with eight go- gates open, you have the entire carob flown at the, the speed that it would normally. But of course, it's because you have water backed up because they've been closed. And so during the winter time, when you have a lot of rainfall and into the spring, they usually leave the gates open to, to regulate the, the level of water in the carob, in Loch Carob. We'll finish with this one then. What's your favourite coastal area in Ireland? Oh, <laughs> you're really putting me on the spot. I, I am, <laughs> and I'm thinking beaches. I'm thinking about somewhere where... Yeah, um, yeah. I, if if you talk to people from Galway and and they'll um, wax lyrically about their beautiful beaches and, and dunes, and they are, of course, and they're, they're wonderfully wild. I have to say now, you, you, you won't get a, a better place for the wild Atlantic way than Galway, but... If you're talking sand dunes, uh, as you go up the coast, you, yeah, they have some nice ones in Mayo. But once you get to Sligo and Donegal, you have just the most amazing sand dunes in the world. And what qualifies a uh, good sand dune? Uh, a good sand dune is uh, 
well, that, again, that's back to your personal personal preferences. But when you when you go and visit those, the height of them, the extent of them, they take your breath away. If you try and climb up one, it'll take your breath away. Uh, oh, by the way, please don't be climbing up the sand dunes; <laughs> it causes erosion. Um, but uh, so they're in the order of twenty and thirty meters high, and they extend for kilometers, two and three kilometers, and then. If you are up on them, you can see back into the background, there's ridges and ridges of them. So, they, you know, as far as the eye can see, you might have sand dunes. Whereas, um, you know, in other areas in, in Ireland, they, they may be a lot smaller or over on the East Coast. They, you know, it's very, very sad to see, but there's a lot of hard rock engineering where sand dunes used to be and, and um, riprap and things like that. So, sorry, to answer your question, uh, the sand dunes and beaches of Donegal. And there's a couple of things you mentioned there. So one is um, the, the the engineering on the east coast. What's been the main motivating factor to do that? Is it again to produce high quality um, properties and? No, the the what well, it's essentially because we have built too close to the coast. So uh, right along the the east coast, we have uh, much softer sediments. So we have those glacial tills we have a lot of, of sand on the coast and it's a lot more mobile when there are storms so luckily they don't have the storms we have on the west coast but um really it's it's in the past people have built too close and they may may have built a good distance back but um that the the, the sand and the soil in front of them is it's not hard rock and so it can erode at these great big jumps mm. when we have these storms over over time. But uh, maybe just to to uh, end that on on a you know a more positive note and and you're asking what's my favorite place. So Donegal is just amazing. But right here in in Galway city, right in the heart of the city, we have Grattan Beach. And you could travel to all of these great sites around Ireland. And one thing that you might miss out on because of storms, because of human trampling and all of these different things are embryo dunes. And what we get on Grattan every year are embryo dunes growing. And they're dunes that are up on the upper part of the beach just before the main sand dunes. And they have all these wonderful plants and animals that you don't get anywhere else. We get all these flowering plants like sea rocket and they sprout up on the upper part of the beach they're great for pollinators and they're great for the birds come and eat the insects and it's just a whole hive of activity and we get it every year on Grattan and you can't say that for every beach in Ireland or every dune system in Ireland and uh, so the, even this morning I was down there with a, a class from Skolenda we had a, another group in from Moy Cullen not with me with the aquarium and there was another group that arrived on a bus and just looked after each other on the beach and so it's just a great place to learn about the environment and learn about sand dunes and the sea and everything right here on our doorstep in Galway. And you also mentioned don't be climbing up in the sand dunes so what's the science behind that? So uh, for Sand dunes, those plants and animals that I was just talking about, they're, they're really tough because they live in this environment where they have a lot of salt coming in off the sea. They have seawater um, coming in over them. They have really strong winds. The sun is beating down on them. Um, and they're really tough to be able to live there. Mm -hmm. But when we stand on them, they snap really easily. 
And after two or three people walking across a, a particular plant, it, it just dies. And when it dies, then it, its roots and its, its presence can't hold that sand together. And so the sand then is free to blow away. And what we've been asking people for the last few years is to try and stay off the sand dunes, um, and especially those ones that are very narrow. So places like uh, Streeta in County Sligo, Bertra in County Mayo, they're very narrow and there isn't much room in the back. And when the, the tide is high, the only place you can walk is on the sand dune. And if you're trampling on the sand dune, it, um, the, the vegetation will die back and the sand will blow away. And so you have coastal erosion that's human caused. And on top of that, during the winter, then if you have a, a storm, that erosion that we have caused during the summer really destabilizes it and you can have serious erosion events. So that's why we, we encourage people to stay off the sand dunes. So there's two calls to action I've got from this podcast. Number one is stay off the sand dunes. Number two is go on to the uh, Galway City Council website uh, for the flooding area of the website. And yeah. I'll provide a link in the description if people want to get involved there. Perfect. And maybe can I put a plug in for, Absolutely, please for, do. My, for my own uh, dunes.ie? I have a, a blog and I talk about just some of these issues and uh, again, back to Grattan, seaweed, you know, uh, what, what are the, the ways in which we can look at seaweed, which isn't just about, oh, it's smelly and we need to remove it. it it's nutrients for plants. It holds water in the soil, all of these different types of issues. So if you want to learn a few things in a really non-academic way, I, I use as plain a language as I can, uh, just go on to dunes.ie and maybe read about a few of these things. I should have said that at the top. I'm sorry, Kevin. Uh, I've been on the website and it's very informative. And yeah, as you say, it's a very scientific um, subject matter, but you present it in such a digestible way. It's it's uh, commendable. Great. great. Yeah. Kevin, thank you very much for your time. I'm so, uh, I feel like I've, I'm awash with information now. <laughs> no, thank you very much. And it's always a great opportunity to talk about uh, sand dunes and, and hopefully people will, will enjoy it and go out and enjoy the environment as well. Good man. Okay, keep on the good fit. <laughs> Thanks very much. Cheers. This has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production. <laughs>